Welcome to Allow Me to Explain. This is Famous Amos Chapman. What, we're doing nicknames now? Uh, yeah. I've kind of just decided on the fly. Uh, yeah, I... Brent the Manther Pinero. Want to resurrect that old? Nah, Jim. I feel like that's better left in the grave. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> Beatmaster Beat? Maybe. We did used to call Brent Beatmaster B in high school. That did happen? We were very cool, coincidentally. <laughs> coincidentally. And popular. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so in tonight's episode, we are going to discuss private health insurance and why we think the private health marketplace is ultimately a very dysfunctional one. The particular argument we're going to be making is that healthcare should be a public good. Absolutely. Um, provided by the government and not by private firms in a competitive marketplace where they're trying to reach profit maximization. Ideally, yeah. Ideally, yeah. So, but quick side note, just to um, clarify our terminology before we get into any of the issues. A public good is just something that is like non-excludable. It has to be provided to everyone by a kind of profit-neutral actor. It doesn't have to be the government, it could be a, a non-profit. Yeah. Um, but it's not intended to be provided in like a, a marketplace or through production or for purchase or anything like that. Yeah, or for profit, really. Or for profit, exactly, which is the big one. Um, so we are going to be talking about how the United States in particular, given the fact that we are one of the only uh, advanced countries in the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development? Yes. Okay, got that one right. Nailed it. Nailed it. Uh, because we are an anomaly in the sense we do not have universal publicly provided health insurance, it's worth assessing whether our system of privately provided health insurance plans is working better or worse in comparison to those our, our, um, countries. And basically the conclusion that we've come to is that our system is has a lot of systemic problems and dysfunctions, and that's just because it doesn't work as a market. It does not. And I think there are a few different really good reasons for that. Basically, in any market from like a strictly economic perspective, each firm is assumed to be profit-maximizing, right? Or the goal of, you know, selling a certain service or good is to, you know, provide a better quality of life for most individuals while also making profit for whatever business. But if you look at health insurance within that framework, it, it seems to be uh, kind of counterintuitive. Because if you think about it, keeping people alive for longer or providing them with medical care when they're like a constant financial drain inherently isn't profitable. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So insofar as private insurance firms are driven by a profit incentive, uh, the only way that they can really make a profit, to use the, in the case of insurance specifically, is by insuring a lot of people who are going to pay premium and not really make that many claims or use medical resources too often, right? Yeah. So they're paying a lot and taking very little. And if anyone who has like pre-existing conditions or is reaching the end of their life or has been battling illness or even is just suddenly beset by an illness like cancer or heart disease that they didn't yeah. expect, suddenly becomes the worst customer an insurance company can have, right? Yeah. And there are not really sufficient incentives in place for those people to be taken care of at a rate that they can actually afford. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that it's it's worth saying that specifically in the private insurance market, individuals who are trying to get health insurance and who need health insurance the most are the people that usually kind of get shafted by our current system. Mm -hmm. um, because they create these, you know, really complex risk pools by which they're trying to balance out 
uh, you know, risk in between people who are very high risk and people who are relatively low risk yeah. so that at the end they, you know, end up on top and can make a profit. Yeah. And I think that that system provides suboptimal uh, benefits to the populace. Because if you think about health insurance, it's, its entire goal is to be a safety net, mm -hmm. you know, behind a person so that if, you know, some type of disaster happens to them or they, you know, fall ill, uh, they don't have to pay for all these, you know, astronomically high medical costs. Yeah. Right. And inherently, because of the way the you know, private health insurance system is designed, they are disincentivized from providing the best and most amount of care for those individuals. Yeah. Because they're naturally, you know, they're the people that are spending the money that's put into the fund of the insurance, uh, at least most of it. Well, it, I think it's interesting to think about, like, what situations or circumstances in which markets work, right? Yeah. In which they are efficient. And markets work... First of all, when people can get quick feedback on whether or not that they have made a good decision or a good purchase. And there's necessarily a feedback lag with insurance because you could be paying for years into a policy before you have any idea if it's actually going to cover you in some kind yeah. of crisis or catastrophe. And also, markets do not work when the cost of providing a service to some customers is like spread out and shared by everyone else. And this is sort of why I don't think, even though I like the Affordable Care Act, I think it's mostly just a patchwork solution because you can require insurance companies to you know, take on people with pre-existing conditions. But what happens is that the cost is just distributed, right? And the only way for insurance companies to pay for that is to shift cost to consumers. And so what happens is that for younger, healthier people, who are sort of in the middle area of the income spectrum or the lower middle class, um, for them, the cost of taking care of those older, more sicker people who use more resources, that's built into their insurance plans. Yeah, that's right? built into their premiums. So other people end up paying, yeah, higher premiums, again, for health insurance that they, they don't use very often and yeah. that has high co-pays and deductibles to take care of much sicker people. And then you realize that at that point, it's not really working in the way that a market should, where you get this transactional, it has this transactional nature where you get what you pay for, right? Yeah. Instead, you have like the, the, the spreading out of the cost across, you know, to all customers. And it tends disproportionately, I think, to fall on people in the lower middle class. They're the people who are the ones who are least able to kind of cope with the premium increases over time. So, And, and I definitely think that that's 100% correct. And, and when you look at the way our system operates, they are inevitably the people that get fucked the most <laughs> by our system. That's definitely um, true. But it just makes you think about the fact that like, if the cost, if, if you know, as, as these insurance companies risk pool and the costs of taking care of the, the old and the sick and the ill is already built into your private insurance plans, right? Then wouldn't it be better for us to have like a more simple transparent system where we pay by taxpayer dollars for universal health insurance or health care? Yeah, and I think a big point behind this is like what you were kind of alluding to earlier is just the, the information gap between, you know, health insurance providers and individuals. Because, you know, there's not some universal price index for how much a certain surgery costs no. in a certain place, right? Yeah. And so, like, you don't actually know whether or not the percentage, you know, that you pay via, like, paying co-insurance mm -hmm. or the flat fee that you pay uh, via co-pays whenever you go to see the doctor. Yeah. Um, there's just not enough information sharing between the two entities for it to be... Uh, really efficient as a market or, or work properly and create like an optimal result where people are getting, you know, what they pay for. Yeah. And, and the thing is, 
especially for health insurance, I think you often have the like illusion of competition just because there are a lot of insurers in a given marketplace. And that's typically only the case in cities, right? Rural areas have the opposite problem of only having a few insurers. Yeah. But I, if any. Yeah, exactly. But in, in places where you have like a lot of quote unquote competition in the marketplace, you could have like 34 insurers in a given area. Um, most people do not have enough information to make an informed comparative choice about which policy would be better, whether to go with Blue Cross, Blue Shield, or another provider. Um, all, the, all the information around health insurance plans is incredibly dense and detailed and technical, and most people don't. There's an information asymmetry because the health insurance provider is always going to have disproportionately more information than the individual. And that also applies to the doctor-patient relationship um, on a healthcare level. Yeah, I mean, that's they've published tons of studies talking about how, you know, individuals pay way more for different operations or tests that don't actually benefit them in any real way, and they're just, you know, taking money out of their pocket. Yeah, well, and, and, and the thing is, we would like to assume that whenever you go to the doctor, that doctor is going to recommend treatments that are going to be the best thing for you, right? Like the thing is most likely to get, help you get well and also something you can afford, right? But it, instead, what often happens is that in hospitals and places that provide medical care, a lot of the resources and costs get like channeled to the profit centers, right? So like at a hospital, the emergency room could be underfunded, but cardiology would make a bank, you know? Yeah. It would have like yeah. the most sophisticated, like, sophisticated stuff, the highest paid doctors, that kind of thing. And that also happens, that happens even on like a very basic level, right? When you go to the doctor, the prescriptions that they're going to give you, in a lot of cases, might be for things that are going to allow them to make the most profit. What this leads to is spending on unnecessary things. So um, there was a lot of studies have estimated that like 30% of U.S. medical spending is unnecessary, including fraud. It basically means billing for services that were either not needed or not rendered. It's just wasted cost. Yeah. Um, because of um, doctors prescribing tests that and that's people billions don't, of dollars. It's billions of dollars. Doctors prescribing tests that people don't really need because those are expensive, right? And uh, insurance plans tend to cover them, that kind of thing. So it, it's just the per, there's just a perverse incentive structure. And if we allow, we want like hospitals and medical care providers and insurance companies to be profit maximizing, right? That necessarily creates incentives to like not provide people the basic care that they need in a timely manner, especially if they're on the lower end of the income spectrum. Yeah, I mean, especially because, you know, our, our entire healthcare system is based on kind of a reaction principle where, yeah. you know, health insurance is in reaction to you getting into a car accident or you developing some type of disease, falling ill. It's all very reactionary, where is if you look at other countries and the way in which they have their health system set up, it's very preemptory as well as reactionary. Um, and so I, I think a lot of the cost as far as insurance goes, since a lot of it's just like so unpredictable as far as risk and like how high premiums are and the reason why it's so volatile as far as like the changing of prices mm -hmm. is because we are using a reactionary system and the amount of risk ultimately can't be calculated to a T. Well, I think for most people who, who are like not wealthy people, what they try to get are like minimal catastrophic insurance plans where the premiums aren't that high, but usually yeah. the deductibles are. And the idea is that you know if you ever got into an accident or if you ever became ill, you would have that as kind of a backstop to prevent you from going broke and paying for treatments. Sure. But at the same time, what that means 
is that so much of the resources within our healthcare system are allocated toward treatment and surgery and not toward just like basic preventative, like scheduled care for people, you know, weekly yeah. checkups and recommendations from the doctor. And it so makes, it makes healthcare, you know, a lot cheaper when they're able to like catch some of these, you know, very systemic diseases or, you know, chronic diseases early on so that you can get treatment. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, because, you know, it, the, the amount of like treatment you have to take when you like come upon disease and late in its stages as far as, and in comparison to, you know, before. Yeah, like, exactly. It's, it's and, more expensive. And, it, and, it, and, it, and it, the thing that makes all of this really maddening, right, um, is that if we had a system that invested more in providing preventative care to people, if everybody just had like a universal, you know, government issued healthcare uh, package that entitled them to certain benefits, um, what you might actually see in the long term is improvement in health trends because we spend disproportionately, or we spend comparatively a lot more on healthcare than our neighbors in Europe, than Canada, than other advanced countries. True. Um, and yet, we don't necessarily receive better healthcare in return. I mean, we I, have I shorter life expectancies. We have higher levels of like infant mortality. We have more like diabetes and heart disease. The last two of, of the list, those are like preventable things that if we had more investment in preventative care, we could help people catch early on in their lives. Yeah, I, I think that's that's definitely true. And I, another thing that we should take into consideration when like thinking about this issue is the fact that we are the most, you know, uh, medically innovative country in the world. Uh, we've created something around 50% of the drugs that are actually in existence and uh, even larger percentage of the medical devices that have been created. Um, and I think a lot of the problem of like things being really expensive is, is due to the fact that, you know, these companies have patents on these products for like such a long period of time that it can increase prices. And, you know, that's, that's a systemic issue that's been, you know, really seen in, you know, pharmaceutical goods, just drugs in general. You know, there's a whole scandal uh, last year about uh, that guy buying that AIDS cure and then uh, spiking the prices to like $900 a pill or something yeah, like that. that's crazy. Yeah. And, and, you know, you see stuff like that happen all the time, which doesn't help. But, you know, it, this is all just kind of compounds on itself to create this system in which things are necessarily going to be more expensive because it's not streamlined through a single entity. Exactly. Yeah. And it, I think people, it, it's tempting to think, and I think we were talking about this earlier off air, about how the complexity of bureaucracy would make any kind of public health care system slower and less efficient, right? That's usually people's retort to the argument that other countries have it better off, right? And so, well, it might take, you know, months for you to get healthcare. You have to wait in long lines at the emergency room, that kind of thing, right? Um, which there is definitely something to be said for that. But yeah. at the same time, we're already dealing with like a, a scarcity of medical resources. For, There's a huge lack of access. Yeah, and we're, lack of access to insurance. That, like we talked about earlier, that information asymmetry where most people do not have enough information to make like informed, weighed decisions, right, about which healthcare or health insurance policies to pursue. Um, and so it's hard for me to imagine how it would be worse if it were provided in a, in a simpler way by a single entity. You would cut out a lot of the cost that necessarily comes from the complexity of the system. I mean, I think in, in as far as like conceptually, uh, I think you're definitely right. I think, you know, we get, it gets kind of uh, iffy when you introduce, you know, human error and the already existing bureaucracy of our federal government. Sure. 
and, and you know that that in and of itself makes making these decisions a lot harder because there's just so many different interest groups who want our policies to favor their business or you know whatever it is that they're producing and there are a ton of lobbyists as far as like you know healthcare medical devices and things like that and also especially you know big pharma like but, yeah but what i was saying earlier is that like it's hard for me to imagine a situation in which government does a worse job providing for the basic health care needs of people who are not poor enough to qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, but are also not wealthy enough to like have a comprehensive insurance plan. I think I think initially and like immediately on a, on a on a very basic level, I think we would see like a lot of improvement. But I think most people are concerned with the projection of like how fast our healthcare system is innovating and becoming better. They think that you know a government system would stagnate that growth. What do you well, think about that? Well, I think that that is only true in certain sectors. You talked earlier about drugs, and yeah, like drug and I would say in pharmaceutical drugs and medical device technology. I mean, that's a huge portion of healthcare, though. No, it is. Uh, don't get me wrong, right? But um, still, when it comes to providing like basic kind of regulatory treatment to people. Um, our system is really bad at that because so little money is invested in that because there's way more money to be made in prescription drugs and in medical devices, right? Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And so, and so you're right. We don't want to kind of, we don't want to snuff out that incentive. Um, but at the same time, I think that we could maintain it while still shifting the responsibility to the government for providing for the more basic health care needs. Yeah, I mean, in any, in any government-provided program that requires any you know, interaction with private markets or private businesses, especially medical practices, you know, one of the important things that uh, politicians should be considering, and this should be you know, a big portion of, of the you know, Affordable Care Act debate, whether mm-hmm. or not we should repeal it and whether we should replace it with, is the fact that... We should you know. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't want I mean, to convey my opinion. <laughs> I don't know, but I think I think it has its you know its pros and its cons for sure. I, I take that back. If I actually saw a plan, and I've kind of you know toyed around with this in my mind, but I haven't seen anything. Um, if I'd actually saw a plan that I thought was like a better replacement to the Affordable Care Act, like I would all I would be totally in favor of repealing it. Wait, you're saying that you're open-minded and you can? I'm saying that think objectively. That's crazy. Thank you. That's actually my Tinder profile. Oh, God. Gets me, gets me a lot of right swipes. Hey, you know what? I'd swipe right. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> you have to maintain incentive structures. Yeah. That's all I was saying earlier. No, I, and I totally agree. You know, because when you, when you, a lot of people go into medical school, you know, a lot of doctors, uh-huh. based on the, the preconception that they're going to make, you know, a pretty decent amount of money because they're specializing in a certain field. And they're going to, into, you know, a lot, of, and a lot of times, you know, a quarter of a million dollars in student loans to go to medical school. And, you know, a lot, I think a lot of, you know, people on the right, a lot of the concern is that people will stop becoming doctors. What, mm-hmm. what do you think about that? I don't know. I think that there is, like... Because you had to put an artificial cap on, on salaries in order to make this type of thing affordable. Yeah, you, know? you, definitely, you definitely would. But uh, <laughs> it's hard for me not to think about this as, like, a two-sided issue. Because if the cost of medical school itself was a lot more reasonable and we didn't have such crazy price inflation... Um, for college tuition in this country, then that wouldn't even be so much of a concern. But you're right, yeah. like, you know, medical school, especially really good ones, are very expensive. And you kind of have to, um, you basically gamble, right, that in taking out loans, you'll be able to pay them back by getting, like, a high-paying job as a sort of specialist. Yeah. But um, at the same time, I think that, I don't really know if that incentive would be entirely eliminated. 
No, but that's what makes, you know, any type of government subsidization into the economy difficult is finding that optimal spot where, you know, you're not paying well, too much and you're not paying too little. But again, I mean, right now we have a system where there, there are huge incentives for people who have the, the, the means and the skills for it to go into these kind of practice, like specialist practitioner fields of medicine, um, but it's not doing us any good. You know, like, yeah, I mean, like I, you're right, a lot of people are going to school and taking on student loans um, in order to make like a, you know, six figure salary and all that stuff. Yeah. But like, it, like I said, I don't think that like, you know, we have that system now, there's huge incentives and what do we have to show for it? N nothing. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we do have like some of the most advanced healthcare in the world. Well, what we have to, but, 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 but I mean, that is only as far as the quality of care. We, we have, so we have some of the best healthcare in the world for our most richest citizens. And I think that's like, you know. Yeah, there's um, something inherently wrong with that, I think. Definitely, definitely. So I don't know, I think one thing that's interesting to consider is that people often assume that if we had healthcare as like a publicly provided good, so we have a universal single payer program, private insurance is just taken out immediately because you don't need insurance to pay for healthcare, it's just provided by the government. Yeah. And people assume that if we shifted to that system, it would just be so expensive. As taxpayers, we would have to bear the weight of this, you know, massive cost of providing health insurance or health care to everyone. But at the same time, it is interesting to consider that right now we spend more as a country per capita on health care, and that's public funding on a government level, than the government of the UK. Right? We spend something like 17%, and to give you perspective or scale, the UK spends about 8.6% of their gross domestic product in public funding for health care. So in Medicare and Medicaid, they only insure what, like 34% of the American population? Yeah, so, right so we spend more money insuring 34% of the population than other countries do, providing universal coverage to all of their citizens. Exactly. And that's, that's, that's per capita, that's adjusted, right? Yeah. And it makes you think that like, it makes you realize that government provided healthcare might actually be a lot more affordable because it wouldn't be like the system we have now where the government gives people insurance to pay for private health care, which is already so massively expensive and, and cost inflated. Absolutely. And I think there's definitely an argument to be made there insofar as you look at, you know, health trends throughout all of these different countries who do have universal health care systems. And we have major health issues, epidemics throughout, you know, our country, you know, obesity, diabetes, mm -hmm. among multiple others, yeah. right, that you don't see in a lot of these other countries. They're, in fact, you know, uh, on the whole, at least per capita, right, when it's adjusted that way so we can, you know, kind of at least adjust for the fact that they have millions of people less than us, right? Yeah, exactly. On, the, on looking at that scale, if you look at health trends, we are not better off with this system and we're spending, you know, Tons more. We're not. And if you think about, it's interesting to consider what we're spending money on as like individual American citizens who consume healthcare and insurance. Um, so you talked earlier about how diabetes and heart disease are not as widespread in a lot of countries that have universal health coverage. And I totally agree. And I think one of the reasons for that is that as Americans, we actually have like relatively few yearly hospital visits and checkups compared yeah. to people in other countries who could just take advantage of like free medical resources. But we, we are like way more frequent users of really expensive medical screening technologies like the MRI machine. Yeah. And so, so much of the money that we spend on healthcare 
is on expensive screening for you know looking for um, yeah, preemptory care yeah preemptory care but at the same time so little of our healthcare resources are spent on preventative care and checkups and so what that means is that that's not like a profit center for hospitals um, and it does it falls below the deductible cutoff for most insurance plans it's almost like the most kind of essential beneficial form of preventative health care we could be providing people um, is just left out of the picture for the most part. Or yeah. it's there, but it's too expensive for people to use on a regular basis. Yeah, like, you know, the, the cost is too high. The opportunity cost for people to go to the doctor as far yeah. as, you know, even, even you know, not even just opportunity cost, the literal cost of going to the doctor, you know, uh, on a frequent basis is substantially higher here than anywhere else. And I think we definitely see that with, you know, certain health trends. In the United States. I just, you know, if, if people had the ability to go to the doctor whenever they felt something was wrong and needed to check up and they wouldn't actually get like a bill that would require, that would take a significant chunk out of their like monthly income, um, imagine how many preventable diseases would be detected earlier on in people's lives and treated, you know, in a timely manner. I just think that like it is pretty outrageous to consider the fact that we as American citizens pay a lot more for health insurance and care and receive a lot less in the form of inexpensive benefits. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which is why, again, coming back to the thesis of this episode, we really think that healthcare kind of has to be a public good, and I think it will at a certain point. Yeah, eventually. Our, our, our economy, I don't think right now, is at a, a point which we could adapt to that relatively easily. No. I mean, if you think about insurance and healthcare and like the way in which they're provided and the profit incentives that are currently in place, it's it's a lot. Yeah. You know, it, it is a huge market in the United States. And if we're going to make some type of revolutionary shift towards yeah. making healthcare a completely public good provided by the government, it, it needs to be done over, you know, a period of time. I don't think they can just be like, you know, implemented in, in four years of someone's presidency. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, there are a lot of other systemic problems uh, that people just kind of glaze over. Like a lot of these prices are inflated because like we are talked about earlier the price of medical education is so high they have to make a return which has affected the rest of the healthcare market to mm -hmm. a large extent and you know, nobody really talks about that that's not part of you know the affordable care act or any proposal that republicans have presented i feel like a lot of our solutions are just trying to deal with the immediate problems without dealing with the foundational problems of our system i totally agree and you know th those can be found and numerous areas like well, you know, intellectual yeah. property rights. I won't get into that because that's a little bit controversial. Uh, but you know, I, I think that I think that the fact that spoiler alert, Brent doesn't believe in intellectual property rights. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I, I don't think that they should be uh, respected as much as they are now, as far as how long they get to keep the patent and how long they're able to sell the drug. Uh, specifically, if we're talking about medical care or medical devices, for that matter. But Brett, you would be taking away the incentive to innovate. Uh, no, but that, I'm not taking away the incentive. <laughs> I'm, being, to, I'm being facetious. Obviously, <laughs> but like you know, you, you can't take away that incentive uh, really completely because you know I think there's a fundamental drive mm. uh, for that type of product in the market. There's inelastic demand for healthcare. If you need healthcare, you need it. There's not. It's not like oh yeah, I'll shop my options, especially because you know we have major information gaps like we talked about earlier. You know. Yeah. But well, and this is this is one of the frustrating things to consider is that like because demand for healthcare is inelastic, like if you're sick and you need treatment, you have to pay for it. A lot of insurance plans 
are not comprehensive, right? They just cover like catastrophic care because they know that people who go to the doctor's office whenever they have some kind of treatable ailment are just going to shell out and pay for it, right? Because they don't have a bunch of different price options, right? It's not like one emergency care provider is going to be a lot cheaper than another. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no... And there's no way that they could know that. And even, yeah, even if it was the case, right? Um, so, yeah, I, it's just, it's one of those things where, like, based on, like, my understanding of economics, which, Brent, is not as advanced as yours, the things that you need for a private marketplace to really work well, right, the ability for there to be, like, a reasonable price equilibrium reached, right, between supply and demand, and efficiency of people being provided goods that they actually use and that benefit them. It seems like so many of those factors just don't exist when you treat health insurance and care as a private good. And so, and I, and I just, I haven't heard any arguments that have persuaded me otherwise. Uh, and, you know, as of late, because I've recently come around to this opinion, uh, I haven't either. I, I don't think that there is a decent argument to be made that directly, you know, contradicts the idea that healthcare is designed to keep people healthy and a healthy populace is ultimately beneficial from a social perspective mm -hmm. and an economic perspective. Ergo, it creates you know a higher quality of life for people when yeah. people are healthier. Yeah. And in most societies, when they have a healthier populace, are happier and just more prosperous. And it's one of those foundational things, along with you know education. It's so important that I almost don't think that this whole like I shouldn't have to pay for someone else's healthcare. Uh, is really a reasonable argument at this point, considering the information you we already have. are paying for other people's health care. <laughs> yeah, which risk is pools. ironic. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that they're very happy about that, and if they had a choice, they might not. Sure. And, and I want to be clear: I'm not saying that these people are being selfish. I just don't think that they have the moral high ground in this particular scenario. You know? Yeah, and I also think that, like, if those people, people who say that you know, I don't want universal health care because I don't want my taxpayer dollars going to pay um, for someone who has diabetes and has to go to the doctor all the because time. Because they made bad health decisions. Because, yeah, because they drank a lot of big gulps or what have you. Um, yeah. that, to that person, just like show them like the side-by-side -side data sets about like how much we pay for healthcare in the U.S. and how much people pay for healthcare in Canada or the U.K. or Australia or Denmark. And they'll quickly realize, right, that even though they think it would be worse for them to be paying directly for someone else's health care, they're already doing that. Like yeah, now, because I mean, because you know, of crazy inflation yeah. and prices. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and also, you know, just most tax, most state taxation pays for public emergency rooms and things like that. So you're, but, you're having to pay for it regardless. You're so right. You're right. Might as well make it effective and make it a little bit cheaper. But like, in order for very sick people um, to actually sign on to an insurance plan, they have to become, for the insurance company, a good investment. Now that doesn't happen, but what, what does happen is that you can kind of um, cushion the effects of the bad investment you make when you insure someone who's been struggling with, I don't know, cancer their entire life. Yeah. You can cushion that by pooling, in a risk pool, different insurance plans, and by shifting costs to consumers and charging healthier people more who tend not to use the services they pay for. Um, and so just on like a private level, it is already true that you are paying for other people's insurance. And the way that you pay for it is through high premiums and high deductibles. And if more people realize that, I think they would be more sympathetic to switching over to a public, a publicly provided like universal healthcare system. Yeah, and I feel like it is, you know, 
in large part caused by the fact that people just don't really know. People don't know what's going on. And I, in you the know. words of Donald Trump himself, healthcare is complicated. <laughs> yeah. He had that epiphany at a certain point when they were drafting the uh, American Health Care Act. Yeah, I mean, I thought that that would have been an epiphany he had when he was arguing for the repeal of Obamacare, but, you know. Well, um, <laughs> no, yeah. but, but you're right. You and, win some, you lose some. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. People, people aren't really informed. And, again, that's one of the reasons why, as a private marketplace, it doesn't work. But, and also, I think that, like, when I talk to really conservative people about this issue, people who care a lot about free markets, and they think that the solution to things is always, like, competition... Um, what I want to express to them is that, like, look, free markets still work, right? Yeah. Private enterprise is still hugely important, but it doesn't work with this particular good, right? Like, provided as a private commodity, health insurance and care, like, I, that's just going to be a deeply dysfunctional kind of marketplace. Yeah, because just, it inherently doesn't operate off the same incentive structure. It's, it's, exactly. It's not, it's not profit maximization. You know, it, it's keeping people alive at, at the necessary costs associated with whatever disease they have. Yeah, you know? but whereas in most other markets, the, the cost of something is mediated by demand. That's just not the case for healthcare and insurance. And so I think that you can be in favor of universal healthcare and also still be like a, a free market Reagan conservative or whatever, right? Absolutely, absolutely. You just have to you come to terms with the fact that it doesn't operate in the same way that most other markets do. So most of the other proofs that they use... Mm -hmm all these models that they use to, you know, evaluate whether or not a market has reached, you know, price equilibrium or quantity equilibrium where they're, you know, making as much as they can. They're at the profit maximization point. It just doesn't affect uh, healthcare in the same way. Like, it's not achievable uh, mm -hmm. based on the, the goal and the design of, of healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. So, in conclusion, I think that... I'm 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 not so confident about like prescribing solutions to this problem in the United States. Well, it's it's complicated. It's really complicated. <laughs> it's easy to say like, oh, we should shift over to um, a universal healthcare plan, like you know the United Kingdom has, and that kind of is more or less what we're saying. But like in the short term, I have no good ideas for how to accomplish that. Because I just think that we need to take more time and, and provide a more customized approach with that kind of general umbrella idea of making it, you know, Im implemented by the government. Now, we don't have to do exactly what Canada did or exactly what the UK no. has done, even though they're, they're, they're decent models, but, you know, the United States is a different country, we, and, and we, we, we have should... to recognize how complicated this is, yeah. and, and, and not just try and make, you know, blanket solutions, which I think is a, in large part why a lot of the parts of the Affordable Care Act uh, weren't as effective as people wanted them to be was because, you know, it was, it was kind of a one-size-fits-all solution. Sure. And I think that, you know, there, we should be looking at what other countries do and kind of selectively uh, figuring out yeah, yeah. which part of their models work best. Like, I really like the system in the UK whereby private firms get awarded government contracts for providing certain, like, specific medical services and yeah. technologies, you know? Like, it preserves that competition and the private, or in the profit incentive while still creating uh, control over the prices. Um, and also, like, you know, it's not like if we switched over to a universal healthcare system, private insurance would go away. It would still work as a supplemental option for wealthy people who want to, like, add private insurance onto their public yeah, Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I think that, like, we'll get there eventually. And the Affordable Care Act, I think, has started a process by which, over time, the American people will increasingly 
become attached and entitled to the benefits of that law, particularly the people who received coverage because of the Medicare and Medicaid expansions, and that like incrementally over time, we are going to move over to a single payer universal plan. Yeah, and and when we do it this time, everyone has to you know be on the same page because like we we were talking about this off the air a little bit uh, about how. You know, a lot of different states didn't accept the you know, the Medicaid and Medicare expansions yeah. from the Affordable Care Act, and, and the success of the law and of the that policy is predicated on the assumption that they do expand those programs. Yeah, and so we can't even get really a a realistic read on how effective this program was just because it wasn't actually completely implemented. Well, and I think that's and that's another reason why this is going to take a like a long ass time is because there are a lot of people, especially Republican lawmakers, who are so opposed to like government involvement in the health insurance and care uh, marketplaces um, that they're willing to obstruct at any point the effectiveness of the Affordable Care Act because, you know, for them, they want it to look as bad as possible and to be in as ineffective as possible so they can get a repeal. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is definitely strategic. And obviously that's just politics, but at the same time, um, there, you do see like really strong veins of opposition to government um, involvement in health insurance. But I also think that's going away, you know, like there are a lot of southern Republican states that have started to, to go along with the Medicare and Medicaid expansions, whose citizens have been receiving the benefits of that. And in those states, actually nationwide, the Affordable Care Act is actually at an all-time high in terms of popularity, which is why I think right now it's such a particularly difficult thing to try to repeal it for the Republican Party, because you're yeah. repealing it precisely at the point at which it's increasingly becoming more and more popular. Um, and debatably effective. Yeah, right. And so obviously now there's a ton of incentive for them to try to do whatever they can to prevent that from continuing, that trend in popularity, um, even if that involves like directly obstructing it. Um, and Trump has basically promised that he's going to do that. Right, like yeah. in various tweets or what have you, um, but uh, so yeah, so it's gonna take a while. Like we're not, we're I think many decades from now we'll get there. Um, yeah, I just the think reason, there has to be some major social shifts, and and I think the the general perspective of the U.S. populace has to shift to a certain extent in order for it to be you know implemented on on such a large scale. Yeah, yeah. So my tendency, so like I, that's why I don't feel like that much urgency in saying like this is. These are the steps we should take right now to make healthcare and insurance more providable. So I think as long as we have this private marketplace system, it's just like putting band-aids on a lot of these problems yeah. instead of actually solving them. Because at they're like systemically a, flawed. Yeah, so they're solving them at a systemic level, exactly. So with that, I think we're going to wrap it up. If you guys have any thoughts, by the way, or opinions about what we've been discussing, if you agree or disagree with us, um, feel free to comment on our Facebook page and share your thoughts. We really do want you guys to engage with these ideas, assuming that you feel passionately about them. Yeah, because um, I, I think both of us really would love to have you know some some productive conversations with uh, our listeners. Absolutely, uh, and you know, and and really talk these issues through uh, because you know these are serious serious things that will impact the livelihood of of all Americans you know, for a good period of time. And, and the decisions we make at this point, this junction, because it seems politically a lot of people are pretty against uh, repealing the Affordable Care Act, like we talked about earlier, but the Republican Party has, you know, been egging on uh, to yeah. try and repeal it. We need to become aware of the systemic flaws with the system and 
make sure that you know we support representatives yeah that and advocate for real change instead of band-aid solutions um but this has been another episode of allow me to explain thank you guys so much for listening i am famous amos chapman and i am regular brent canero and apparently we're using nicknames now i don't know how i feel about that <laughs> thanks for listening guys good night